0: Hey there. Thanks for listening. Before we jump into this episode, I just want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training and Brian through his PyTest book. So if you want to get hands on and learn something with Python, be sure to consider our courses over at TalkPython Training. Visit them via pythonbytes.fm slash courses. And if you're looking to do testing and get better with PyTest, check out Brian's book at pythonbytes.fm slash PyTest. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 264, recorded December 22nd, 2021. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Akin. And I am Kim van Vick. Kim, welcome. You've been on Talk Python before, but not here. Yeah, that's right. I've done a couple of Talk
1: Pythons with you, including the one where you bravely submitted yourself to questions from your audience. Another one, I've taught them some small tools. So that was very good fun. I'm very much looking forward to this one as well.
0: You know, both the episodes you on were on were super popular. One was about little automation tools and just cool stuff that people can pick up and unusual easily there. And that was great. And the Ask Me Anything was surprisingly one of the more popular episodes as well. So thank you for being part of that. And you've been part of the audience for sure. You've offered comments and feedback uh, as we do the live show. And uh, recording. so, yeah, to be honest. yeah, Yeah, but now here you are on stage. Thank you for being here. Tell people a bit about yourself before we get started sure i am a devops
1: engineer at the moment and also move engineering based in south africa working with a home loan provider a mortgage provider in the american sense i've been probably doing python for close on 20 years so um the fact that i've shaved means you can't see the gray beard
0: but i have been around for a while (laughs) at the gray beard we're going to come back for some good jokes at the end about this as well not not your beard but just beards in general and gray gray hair Yeah. yeah Nice. Awesome. No, that sounds like really fun stuff. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks for being here. Now, before we actually get into the main content of the show, Brian, I want to do something just a little bit meta. So I went and pulled up or created a questionnaire for people. When we first created Python Bytes, we we're like, all right, it's 20 minutes. The time of this episode is gonna be 20 minutes. So we're just gonna like knock it out, you and me, real quick. And I think it's grown a little bit. We've done uh, we cover a little bit more in detail, we've added a joke. We've added a few like little extra things. Uh, we brought on guests like Kim, and is that is that still in line with what people want when they signed up? So I put together a questionnaire here that just asked three simple questions, and I'd really appreciate if listeners could go to the show notes and just click uh, on the link that says this three questionnaire, three question Google form, or you know find it on our Twitter account or wherever. But it should be in your podcast player show notes right near the top, and they can just click that and fill it out and give us some quick feedback on idea of having a guest on the length of the show and so on. So anything you want to add about that, Brian, just, you know, encourage people no, to give us I, feedback I, so we know.
2: Yeah. I'd love to hear feedback because sometimes we feel a little guilty that we're running long, but I enjoy the, a little bit more in-depth conversation. We still don't go super deep, but I, I think it's a good, well, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm flavoring the, uh, the survey though. So forget what I said No, I'd love to hear feedback of what people think. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, so people can give us feedback there. We'd really appreciate it. The
0: the way people seem to be feeling so far is they they kind of like the link. They definitely like the guest format. Uh so you're welcome here, Kim. This according to listeners, fantastic. Thank you. Um but yeah, <laughs> I think I think people are generally liking, but still, like let's just hear from everyone. Cause I'm ha- if, if a bunch of the people in the audience are like, no, we really want no more than twenty minutes, and my going on about this is actually making it still longer, <laughs> then <laughs> then it'd be great to know, right? So so we'll go from yeah. there. And with that, you know,
2: let's let's play a game. Jump in the first topic. Yeah, Um, I want to talk about Jupyter Games and this. The idea around uh, this is uh, IPython Canvas or IPy Canvas with Box 2D. I'll get a little bit more into it, but the gist is um, making making video games and small video games is one of the ways that a lot of us um, uh, started programming. I know that was the that was the case for me, Uh, and they they were not difficult games, but it was difficult enough, um, these 2d sort of 2d engines and this, uh, some of that's lacking. And I haven't seen that in Jupiter before. And Jupiter is an excellent platform for, um, for a lot of things, especially teaching with, uh, with people that don't have computers if they use an iPad or something like that. So often they can still get access to, uh, Jupiter through hosted systems. Um, so this is, a uh, Jupiter, this uh, article talks about, uh, writing, uh, 2d games and mostly it's a 2d physics engine around uh, a library called box 2d which is a, a C, C++ type engine but it's something that you can access through python wow, and that the is auth- yeah the author- th- those kinds of physics stuff you know when people think of games they think of oh here's what
0: i got to do to get the picture on the screen oh that's yeah. just a start like you need physics you need collisions there's like so much stuff that also gets done so this is really cool
2: yeah. Things like physics and gravity and collision detection and, and uh, like the examples on this page are great. But the uh, yeah, this the, is, the person that wrote we, it is uh, yeah. Torsten Beer. And he's one of the, I think he's, he's got a library called PyB2D, which is uh, one of two different um, uh, Python accesses to this, um, this, this box 2D system. But it's pretty cool. The uh, one of the things I like about this article is that talk it has like lots of pretty examples. But game physics engines are even if they're built for games, they can also be used for things like uh, like an engine simulation or even like airflow simulations. So there's a lot of cool uses for this too that are outside of games. Uh, but the one of the incredible things is how small the programs can be so uh the this this article has a, a contain like a, an attached notebook hosted notebook that um, has things like angry shapes which is uh, like angry birds and a rocket game and there's a color mixing game which I was just fascinated by there's like a bunch of colors drop into it it isn't on the it isn't listed on the uh, article but if you go to the example it's got kind of color mixing thing um and it's uh it's only like 70 lines of code and and with that you can have some some amazing uh, physics examples and I'm pretty excited about this actually so I'd like to do you know I think say, this makes yeah. a lot of sense in the 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 notebook
0: form because you're trying to visualize certain things and sometimes graphs are fine but other times they just don't capture like flow and, and that kind of stuff and it seems like game animation would be great. Kim what do you think?
1: I was also going to say if you can get something very impressive, done in 70 lines of code. As a learning tool, that's brilliant because that's effectively a screen of code. Yeah. Otherwise, um, you'd be looking at, if you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of lines, you know, if you're a seasoned developer, that's perfectly reasonable. But to a, a new person, that must look overwhelming.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: If you can fit a single screen and say, here is it, this is everything you need to make this thing work. And it's quite a powerful tool. And yeah. it looks like a lot of fun, actually. It does look fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, and so there's some interesting, uh, th- the article talks about some interesting uh, hoops he had to jump through using uh, iPy events and iPy widgets and Canvas to be able to draw things and get uh, events from people. But um, uh, this is just some fun stuff. Here's like the, um, I'm sure sh- we're showing on the screen, the uh, thing like Angry Birds. Um, and to be honest, like the playability of it isn't maybe like, it's not on the level of what, you know, playing an Xbox or something like that, obviously. You probably but, won't hook up a controller yeah. to it. Yeah, but um, that you can do something like this so quickly yeah. is pretty amazing. So I, and also on the other hand, if if you write, once you write it yourself, the playability actually doesn't matter that much. I think it's, you're
1: looking at interacting with the thing you wrote. I yeah. think that,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. I love it. This is really cool. Nice find, Brian. All right. Let me tell you about some really interesting cybersecurity side of things. So I'm going to first tell you about this thing called a Thinkst Canary. But that's not actually what I want to talk about. It's just to set the stage. Okay, so here's uh, a challenge. Something that always st- stresses me out is: what if somebody was to break into your app, into your systems, into your cloud infrastructure, or whatever? How would you know, right? Like, what what would be the indicator, right? If long if they don't trash it, they don't you know lock it with uh, crypto lockers or anything like that. Ransomware, then they they could just cruise around there, right? So this company thinks canary uh, created this i think you can put it in the cloud as like a hosted container type thing or you can get like little raspberry pi like things and put them physically on your network if you had a physical network and you could say you act like a sql server you act like an exchange server you if somebody tries to search the network and says show me all the active directories you be that maybe we're not even using active directory because we're not on windows but If somebody breaks in, they may well start looking for those types of things. And what they'll do is they'll trigger alarms if somebody tries to interact with them and normal things shouldn't because only if you're like trolling around looking for them should it be discovered, right? So that's what this is. And with this whole log for shell stuff that's going on, it's just such a nightmare of like, well, we installed this app that did uh, invoice management for us. Did it have a log for shell vulnerability? I don't know, maybe they said they fixed it. But if somebody gets in, it's not just we have to patch the the log for shell or the log for J version. We've also got to then know what else has been run because they could have installed whatever, right? Yeah. So the thing I actually want to recommend to Python people is this thing called Canary Tokens. So check this out. This is fantastic. So what you can do is you can get different things that will then trigger alarms like emails or other sorts of stuff to you. So I can come over here and I can say, I would like to get a URL. And if anybody visits that URL, send me an email and say, you know, whatever message I put in here. So I could come in and say, here's a URL and send me at Michael at talkpython or for my email. And say, this is hidden in the admin section unused, or something like that. And if somebody sends me an email, if I get that email, somebody's gone in and clicked that link in the admin section of my site. And if I didn't, it gives you like IP address and all that sort of stuff. Of, of what comes back. So if I didn't do it, or it looks like an unknown IP, that should be highly concerning, right? Uh, so what else, that URL is interesting. I can get a DNS token. somebody requests, like does a DNS lookup on um, rollout.pythonbytes.fm, I can get an alert to that. That'd be pretty interesting. Um, a unique email address if somebody ever tries to contact that, a Word document. So you get like a Word document and put it in say like SharePoint or something dreadful like that. And if it gets opened, you'll get an email that somebody got that. Um, Let's see, you've got VPN wire guards file. You can create a custom EXE. And if somebody runs your EXE or a SQL server (laughs) instance, or uh, you can even do like directly a log for shell (laughs) link that uh, will run. So if you are trying to like, Figure out. Just put stuff in there to let you know if somebody mm. gets into a part they're not supposed to be in. Like this is really cool. There's no. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't require any setup. Like put a word document in a folder. If it gets opened, let us know. What do you think?
1: Well, I was going to say I'm. I've been looking for ways to do exactly this kind of thing because you know, totally unique in being concerned that log for shell has got impacts that I don't. That I can't <laughs> see on our systems. Yeah. You know, just because your public facing systems happen not to have used log 4 shell things doesn't mean that you're necessarily safe. All it means is that, you know, if some other by some other means, somebody's got into one of your internal systems, wouldn't necessarily know that. So um, I'm very much interested in this. I, I knew about Canaries already, and um, hmm. things st- happened to sponsor the, the local South African PyCon ZA conference. Um, but I, the Canary tokens are a very funky additional add on to that. These, this exactly. I knew about
0: the Canaries as well. I'm like, ah, but that doesn't really apply to the world that I live in. I'm not yeah. like in an enterprise, but like this, These make a lot of sense, and they're free, which I think is cool. Yeah, here's what it looks like if you get uh, a notice. It says, this is the email I got. Your Canary token was triggered. The channel was HTTP. The token was that. This is a test, the IP address of the person. So this was one of those URLs. If somebody interacts with this URL, let me know. Here's their user agent. Uh, Here's the message. There's the IP and so on. So you would just get a notice like that that says somebody clicked on something they shouldn't have had (laughs) access to. Yeah, so anyway, pretty neat.
2: Brian? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty cool. Um, some of the things I didn't think you could, I wouldn't even expect. Like, can somebody cloning your website? I don't, yeah, didn't know that was a thing. Um,
0: I'm scared yeah. now to be honest.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that was
0: something I should be worrying about. Get an alert when a MySQL dump is loaded. Like, okay, like how hmm. how does that happen? I don't know, but that's pretty awesome that it's possible, and also frightening. Yeah. And Sam out in the audience says, ironically, the log for shell might have its own vulnerabilities. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that thing's been patched a couple of times. It's, it's going to be a big, big problem. Anyway, canary tokens. I think this is broadly useful for Python people. You could put the URL stuff in, inside of your app. You could put an email inside of uh, locations. There's lots of stuff that I like this, the database restore type things and so on. This, this looks useful.
2: Yeah, so I, I'm still a little lost. You, you throw this like for instance, like you said in the admin section that it, you shouldn't be using and you just know about it so you don't click it or something? Yeah. Or? So imagine this, imagine you've yeah. got um in your admin section,
0: you've got a like a search for user button. And then next to it, you could just put a an export all data.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And then put one of these URLs at the endpoint at, at and nobody who works you just tell everyone never click the export all data. It doesn't do anything. But if someone were to break in, what's the first thing they're going to want? Oh, well, let's get the export all data. Boom. They'll go click it and you'll know. You, they're still in. It's bad. But at least they're not in and just have in the yeah. unlimited time to be in, you know?
2: Yeah. You can put some other get. stuff too. Yeah. Like, let's say you've got a Django website and you stick, uh, you you load a, like a PHP admin page or something like that. Um, just at the same URL mm-hmm. in case somebody's yeah. trying to grab that or something. Yep. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of interesting little uh, uh, breadcrumbs you can leave in there.
0: Okay, Kim, that brings us to yours. Sure. Uh, the first topic I was
1: going to talk about are actually two similar, but not quite the same pieces of software uh, by uh, PyAuto GUI and PyWinAuto, are both toolkits for automating GUIs, effectively, well, automating GUIs for interacting programmatically with GUIs.
0: Nice. PyWinAuto is Auto normally and, really hard, right? Hey, before, is, you on, bang, before you go on, before you go on, could you give that like three control pluses just for the uh, audience? Sure. Watch sorry, it? I, it's just
1: yeah. now it's a little bit on the small side. Thanks. How's that? A little more Oops. space to play with. There you go. Fair enough. Uh, well, let me just, while I remember, do it to this one as well. <laughs> they both happen to be read the docs documents. So you're quite right. The programmatically controlling a GUI, it can be quite a pain, um, particularly for GUIs that aren't particularly, um, easy to understand. And the reason I bring tools like this up is that there's quite a lot of use cases I can of two examples off the top of my own career and i'm sure there's hundreds more where this kind of thing is useful and you might not know it's something you can do and the kind of examples i'm thinking of are particularly in i'm sure much enterprise and in industrial software when you get a piece of equipment you frequently get a gui tool that accompanies it probably no
0: api right
1: (laughs) well no API server there's a tool you fire up and you set all the settings but because the the company that supplied you the piece of equipment they don't write software it's not their thing you know they 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 either outsource the tool or the intern writes it and it has 50 checkboxes and you know in laid out in grid form and you need to set it up every single time you want to use that piece of software there's no ability to remember what you set. there's nothing to do and i've worked with a couple of those systems and i see brian i think you probably have as well Um, (laughs) where basically there's a piece of paper next to the computer the software is on with a screen print of what the settings should be um, so that the poor poor sucker has to come down and use it knows which of the 50 tick boxes to check and then they have to check that the pattern effectively matches on screen and then they hit run. And something like uh, PyAuto GUI or Auto are both useful so that you can effectively script the startup of that app. And you can say to, you write a small piece of Python that fires this tool up, identifies all the check boxes, ticks the ones you've programmed in and then either leaves it For the human to push go or whatever it is the app does or for that matter pushes go itself and then closes the app and records that it did that so that that kind of use case is very powerful and I think there are lots of cases particularly in enterprise software or internal software that you know somebody wrote for the company that does something very useful but it's been around for 20 years and the guy who wrote it is not around nobody wants to touch it because the source is terrifying so do, nobody's going to sit how down do you even and change get that it. Visual
0: Basic six or Visual Basic five, and well, exactly. You how do you even right?
1: compile it now? Exactly. <laughs> um, so to be able to wrap it is a very powerful thing to be able to do. And the other kind of use case that's somewhat related, it also comes to mind, is um, I've spent a large amount of my career doing industrial automation, factory-based type work, and there, the faster you can go, and the fewer bits of the fewer steps you need a human to repeatedly do, the better for you in many ways that the human's time is best spent actually manipulating objects and checking things rather than opening pieces of software and clicking boxes and, and closing them again so yeah quite frequently we've had cases on the um, production line where the vendor of the chip we're using has supplied this tool that does some security related thing and it's a gui tool and every single time you, was, you would have to open it up you'd have to click the same two boxes they'd have to say yes secure this chip close it again repeat wait for another one to arrive at your at your workstation And if you can automate it again with a wrapping tool, nobody need even be involved at all. Part of your production process is you wrap it, you you fire up the tool, you click the two buttons programmatically, you hit go and you close it again and repeat. And again, I I personally have encountered situations where that's useful and I'd like to, I would imagine I'm far from alone in it. So I just thought I'd mention these things do exist. Um, I suspect lots of people do use them, but for people who don't know that they're there, very useful things to be able to do you're know, Wrapping wrapping GUIs is it's a bit tedious up front because often these tools aren't very well written. So you'll have checkbox one, checkbox four, checkbox twenty seven, checkbox two hundred ninety five, and no obvious <laughs> naming consistency with what they do or
0: how they work. But once you've figured it out, let the let the computer worry, let the let the script worry about what those checkboxes do. Yeah, I've I've seen the backside of that code where you're like mm-hmm. looking at some event handler and it's like. If checkbox twenty-four dot checked, then do this like what in the world? Like who exactly didn't yeah. want to name this? Because they got a program against those names. That's insane. Well, they just yeah, do one famous. at a time.
2: When you're working on well, a, exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're working on one feature and you go, Oh, I need a checkbox. Oh, the default is checkbox twenty four. Then you look for the you you do the callback <laughs> handling and you, you, just, exactly. you just did it. So you know it's twenty four. So exactly. You don't want to bother changing yeah. it. That's cool. Exactly. Brian, does this automation have a place in your world? Um, yeah. So there's, there's like, like, uh, like Kim said, there's places where tools that that don't uh, necessarily have a user interface. The the thing that this doesn't, I don't think these do like web stuff. The web the web automations, other tools.
1: Well, presumably you could automate a browser, but I mean, by, by the time you're doing that, you might as well be using the, the, the yeah. tools designed for it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Selenium or yeah. something. What I what yeah. I'd really hope is. Anybody that has any sort of tool that they're writing in uh, in on a web, so web frameworks often get internal tools get written with web frameworks, and uh, and then mm-hmm. people forget to throw IDs in things. So yes, the the best way to automate a web stuff is to have an ID that you can grab onto, but often they're just these in these nested div nightmares. But anyway, um, yeah, there's a couple of tools that we've used uh, by Win Auto for that are it's pretty nice. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, yeah, it seems like if you're building a GUI app,
0: you could test it with this, like, write sort of full-on integration tests from the outside. And also I was talking to somebody and they were like, well, this app that I work on, it doesn't have like a concept of a back button. So you drive, drive into the menu, hit a thing, go, and then it'll take you back home. And it's like 10 steps, right? I could definitely see a little toolbar thing. You press a couple buttons, like get me to this scenario and I'll put the last thing in. Get me to that scenario. Like do the nine steps, I'll do the 10th. Exactly yeah yeah in, in many
1: ways, the way I've mainly encountered it has been that the first scenario I laid out, not so much actually automating the full running of the tool, but setting the tool up so that it is in the right state for what the company needs without having somebody have to either consult a document and risk getting it wrong or not know which of the settings they should have because that piece of paper isn't with the computer anymore, all that kind of thing it, it shouldn't happen, but it does, and it's much easier to have this kind of to have the computer worry about what the settings should be. Yeah, Ideally the program should remember that, but you know, if they don't, they don't. You know, it's not much you can do to change that <laughs> off of the
0: fact. It's like external yeah. intelligence for a bad app, that's right.
2: Mm. Well, there's also like API stuff that people forget about. Like like um like I wanna I have got a device that, that I, I need to automate connecting it to this to to Windows and getting the device set up or something every time I plug one in. Um mm-hmm. and you know, just automating that that works sometimes too. So anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right, Brian, over to you. Thanks. Um, This (laughs) I saw this. uh, Brett Cannon wrote an article called um, "A Reverse Chronological A Reverse Chronology of Some Python Features," and I (laughs) I really love this article. It's pretty simple. Uh, One of the things I like about it is just because we cover so much, and we've been covering Python releases for quite a while. I kind of forget which releases got I got which feature in. So a a really brief. you know, rundown of some of the different features is is nice. Like like last week, we were talking and saying, "Well, well, you're on if you're on three seven, why would you want to move forward?" And I, you know, I can't remember which features in which. So having a quick bullet list, like um, <laughs> uh, like in three ten, we got the match statement. Of course, we talked about that recently, uh, but also better better error messages. And I'm going to pause a little bit. Uh, Brett brings up in the intro- introduction discussion that. If you're kind of one of those people that think Python's kind of getting bloated and they're throwing too much stuff in it and I wish that we had the good old days where you could just think about all Python in your own head um well you kind of throw everything out if you if he said he recommends going down this list and picking the first feature that you don't think you could live without and uh and everything before that led to that so you can't throw that stuff out either it all kind of goes together and one of the examples is the um uh, the match statement or the, um, uh, what are they pattern matching that, um, that was sort of controversial, but the, um, the, the code to get that to work involved or the process involved, even like making a new, uh, parser for Python, um, or using a new parser for Python. And, but with that new parser, then things like better error messages are possible. So, uh, you, if you like better error messages, which I do, that means three ten and everything below kind of has to stay. Um, but anyway, it's kind of funny. The moving on, I like I forgot what the dictionary support for uh, for like or like the um, the or and or equal uh, that came in in three nine. Um, so if somebody's thinking, well, why should I upgrade? Uh, this is a good list to to take a look at. Nice. All right, I did the little exercise. I've decided three seven
0: seven for you. Tomorrow, so
2: what was the thing in 3.7 that you can't live without? So
0: the dictionary preserving order yeah. stuff mm-hmm. is really nice for like reading and writing files and making sure that they don't um, diff hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you try to like, so they're in the order, you put them there. All the other stuff, I'm not hating on it. Like I, I like the walrus operator. I like some of the other things. I like the lowercase list bracket int rather than importing types. All those are great. I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying like, where would I go? Oh, this it starts to hurt where it really starts to hurt for me at three, seven and below.
2: Well, yeah. I was, I was trying a Jupiter, like Jupyter, an interactive Jupiter system the other day, looking at some data science stuff and it was already set up. And I tried to throw in this, um the, uh, the F string value equal thing to be able to quickly debug a an item. And it didn't <laughs> too, work too, too I'm soon. Like, What the heck? And it turned out it was using three, seven and not three, eight. Um, and apparently I'm very used to that. Uh, and I, don't think I could live without it. Um, yeah. But, and then a uh, wow. reminder also that uh, 311, when it comes out in a year, um, it's just um, going to have a lot of speed ups. So, yeah, if that yeah. Has, it comes with a lot of the performance stuff, then like that's my new number.
1: Tim, <laughs> where are you? Uh, if you forced me to roll back, I would refuse to go further than 3.6 because I must have those if strings. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, they're basically so much, they just make your code so much more attractive. That said, while I don't necessarily use, everything that comes in the new versions, I don't particularly have any problem with them being there. I'm yeah. quite happy to just use the parser Python I want. And um, what really happens to me is that I don't necessarily know I can do something until two versions later. Um, I probably only started doing that val equals on 3.9, for example. <laughs> yeah. And mainly because that's probably the first time I needed it more than anything else. Not, I don't particularly yeah. I rush forward and use the new features when they're available, but I'm glad they're there when I do ultimately want
2: them. Yeah, 3.6 is an interesting example you bring up because uh, it's got f strings. It's got a whole bunch of other stuff too. But really, we we can stop with f strings. Um, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And then the the debugging stuff. Sam, in the audience says, yes. F curly bracket name equals is indispensable for debugging. Oh yeah,
1: I'm I'm with him. As I say, I hadn't used it when it first became available, but I would really not want to not have it available now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Kim, I'm, like your... I'm, a,
1: I'm a caveman print debugger. So
0: <laughs> yeah. Kim, I like your your take on it. Like, it's not going to hurt me if I don't care about it. Um, mm. I think one of the powers of Python is that you can be very successful with Python with a partial, a quite partial understanding of what it even mm. is. You don't know, need to know what a generator is, what a yield is, like what an expression is, what a class is, maybe not even how to create a function. Just, just write the code top to bottom and it'll probably still do something for you. Exactly. And, and so you
2: can sort of bring these in
0: when it makes sense.
2: Yeah, I would definitely still not teach match statements to beginners. It's no. unnecessary. No, um, so exactly. Yeah, totally agree. Whereas
1: I, w- I would use f strings, for example, for a beginner because it's just so much more readable than the other stuff is. But yes. uh, you're right; you don't have to magically. You don't have to use it all because it's there. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm sure there's people out there who feel like it's. I got to use it; it's here. It's, but no, I agree with you. All right, so I, how about I don't we talk? Think I've a... ever
1: written a class operator, for example. Sorry, you're saying. Yeah, that. I actually,
0: yeah. I actually took down a talk Python website or the training website one of them with the walrus operator because i put the walrus operator in a utility script that's not actually used by the site Mm -hmm. but the site scans all the files trying to figure out where the handlers the view methods are and it it killed it because i forgot that this is way back when it was still running Uh 37 so that was my my first really (laughs) oh my gosh but yeah now i use it it's good all right so i want to talk about something that i've actually personally been working on lately this is a follow up to a talk Python episode I did where I interviewed Mike Bayer, came on did a great job, talked about uh, SQL Alchemy Two and so on and i I mentioned that you know just the way that python's GC is set up is it's somewhat hostile to things like ORms where they have to create a bunch of objects and return them to you in one batch. and what do I mean by that? Well, if I'm going to do a query. And it's going to return a thousand records like the best case scenario is it has to create a thousand classes sql alchemy models and give them back right if i'm asking for them as a list well the way the gc and python works not the reference counting but the garbage collector is after 700 allocations of container types classes dictionaries lists etc that do not get cleaned up 700 surviving over the cleanups over a period of time that's going to trigger a garbage collection and so I said, ah, you know, like, is there something you could do? Is there something we could like kind of think about with ORMs? This is not at all specific to SQL Alchemy. This is, happens. I have a, an example here called Pythons GC and ORMs as, as a app and a little conversation on GitHub. And I said, is there something we maybe can do? Or have you guys thought about it? Because I don't really sure what the answer is. And said, not, not so much sure. But here, check this out. So I created this app. It creates a thousand records in both a SQLite database and a MongoDB. Database, so we have like two di- really different examples, and then you run a query that returns twenty thousand records. It's probably a lot, uh, but just
1: you mean it makes a hundred thousand records.
0: Yeah, yeah. If I didn't say that, a hundred thousand records in the database, and it gets twenty thousand of them back. Okay, uh, it's probably a little extra. But for example, if you go to uh, you go over to the Talk Python training site over here, we've got a site map, and in this site map, uh, there are many, many holding down the page down arrow, and you can barely see it. We've got to get like 5,000 records, 6,000 records, just to like list out the number of um, the pages that contain transcripts for the sitemap, right? So um, it's not entirely unreasonable that you would get a bunch of records back and then do something like render a, a page with it, right? Well, under this scenario, if you just run straight Python, that single query results in a 1,859 garbage collection runs. <laughs> just to get one answer back. Is that insane? None of which is garbage. Yeah, no, I, it's not garbage no. yet, because it's just yeah, being definitely. realized from the database, right? Like it, it hasn't even come into existence all the way yet, and it's just like garbage, 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 and it takes uh, 900 milliseconds. If you go and you tweak it in a way that I described here, which you may or may not want to do, but if you did, if you tweak the garbage collector, it will go from 1,800 collections to 29. 64 times less. The speed of the program is 23% faster. Mm. Okay. But it also uses less memory. (laughs) Okay. Less garbage collection. (laughs) Less, Um, lots less garbage collection. And it's not just 1800 Mm. versus 29. Python has this 100 to 10 to 1 ratio of Gen 0, Gen 1, and Gen 2 collections. And Gen 0 collections are pretty cheap because it just touches new memory and looks at it. Gen one looks at like stuff that's only been inspected once, and Gen two inspects the entire memory space. (laughs) For to see, right? So this one, this one will also trigger. uh, What is that? One hundred eighty-five. Yeah, one hundred eighty-five Gen one. So eighteen Gen twos, right? So it's not just oh, there's fewer. There's also like this this other twenty-nine here. This is zero Gen two collections, Mm -hmm. very likely, right? So it's not just the number. They're also like cheaper than um, doing that. Um, so this is pretty interesting. What do you got to do? You just say you run less frequently on allocations and then leave everything else alone. Does it make a lot of sense for absolutely everything? Probably not. There's probably some scenario with lots of cycles that this is a problem. But anyway, I, this this is an interesting thing to sort of consider if you are doing a, some kind of API or a website or something that queries a lot of data over 700 records, basically you're going to absolutely encourage EC when you know it's not garbage, right? So I don't know. Um, I thought this was interesting. I'll put it out there for people to play with and uh, get some feedback. It should be fun to hear about it.
2: This is, I think this is very interesting. Um, and I, uh, I'm i going to, I, mean, I plan on playing with the garbage collection myself. So I'm glad you have this little sample app thing up uh, to, to start playing with it. Uh, one of the things that you can do that a lot of people don't, mess with too much is is not not uh slowing down the frequency but um you can disable it and enable it um and i'm not sure uh i'd like to play with that a little bit more to see if you can kind of kick it off or something like that because
0: you can disable and you can call gc collect if if you need to so like it's it's there i'm not sure if it makes sense to do it but the the, the switches are there
2: yeah i mean there's i mean there's times where i mean you're not going to get real time with python but you can you can get um There's times where you know that you're not doing anything else, so garbage collection is fine. And there's times where you're doing an event and you really want to get done with this as fast as possible. So it might make sense to turn off GC. Sure. And for people who are not super focused on this,
0: turning off garbage collection or altering garbage collection only affects a very small portion of Python's memory because the primary way is reference counting. So, reference counting, things stop referring to it, it goes away only in the case where there are cycles does GC even apply, right? So that's actually, unless you've got really interesting algorithms that are super focused on that kind of stuff, you know, you probably don't even have cycles or very rarely do you.
1: Yeah, interesting. It's not a one size fits all solution, but where it does fit, it's a, it's a pretty simple thing to do that really makes a heck of a difference.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. So my musings um, was, well, maybe someday Python will have an adaptive GC where it runs a certain number of times and says, Oh, I ran, but I didn't actually find any garbage, any cycles. So let me back off that threshold by a factor or two. And then I didn't find any garbage again. So I'll back it off. And then I'll look I found a bunch. So now we got to start doing this more frequently. And I could see like an adaptive garbage collector turning these numbers, but until then I just cranked it up. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Uh Kim, you wanna take stata here for our main topics? Sure. Um, the other topic I was going to talk about is a tool called Docker Slim, which basically It already is, sounds good. I don't know what it does, but
2: <laughs> the opposite opposite, docker Slim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want my docker to be slim. Let's yeah. do it.
1: It's effectively, it's as far as I can tell, um, well, not quite magic, but it certainly seems like it. I, I use Docker quite extensively at work, and because I used a fair amount of it at work, um, I started using it for a lot of personal stuff as well, and to websites I deploy in my own writing. Right. Little things running my own systems are all in Docker containers. And unless you, you take a lot of care about it, your Docker images can end up quite large. If you start with just a Python in an Ubuntu base, for example, you're probably looking at about a gig of Docker image um, before you get anything done. Now, it, the way Docker works, unless you have just one of those things, if you've got more than one, you start to benefit from shared layers. So you're not having a gig and another gig and another gig, et cetera. But still, it all kind of adds up. Docker Slim is a tool to basically look at your existing images, do some analysis and give you back a much smaller and in many ways much more secure image um i have run this i read it earlier today just to kind of check that i wasn't misremembering from the last time i used it and i fed it an image i had which was an incredibly simple small little floss api app i had written um, it, it had one job it basically whenever you sent anything to an endpoint it printed out what that was uh forget exactly why i needed that i think i was having trouble figuring out some suppliers that it wasn't documented how or some suppliers webbook was going to work so basically i set this up and i said <laughs> talk to me and then looked at what it said <laughs>
0: exactly so, side it, note it, that's too. way better than trusting their outdated crappy inconsistent well, documentation It's just all right why don't you just call it we'll, we'll just print out the the json well, document exactly, yeah. you, and then we'll go from there yep so yeah as a, as a side note that was
1: quite an easy thing to do but um that was I just put that into an Ubuntu based container running, um, I forget exactly what, I, presumably I was using fast API. So it would have been Python and Ubuntu and fast API and etc. And that was about a gig of, of image. I fed that to Docker Slim and I ended up with 48 megs. Um, and it still worked. It did everything it was supposed to do. Uh, granted, I fed wow. the simplest thing I had, I mean, it had one endpoint and so
0: forth. I have, still, there's a lot of dependencies yeah, there's python exactly. there's flask maybe there's even micro or something running there who knows but yeah well exactly um
1: what it has done is it's closed down all sorts of other uh, angles of attack makes it sound a bit dramatic but all sorts of ways that you could interface with the container that you don't necessarily need it no longer has for example a um, bash is no longer available in it you can't run it in interactive mode and, and uh, talk to it which is not necessarily a 100% positive thing it makes debugging a bit harder but they do have some solutions for how you can do that with side containers and talk to it in other ways and the like and they if i if you go through them their documentation effectively they're, they're doing all the security stuff and the app homering stuff and all sorts of things that i know are important but i don't know enough about to do right i don't trust myself yeah. to do those things correctly i can basically follow someone's suggestions but i have absolutely no way of knowing if the suggestions i'm following are valid I'm, I'm not immersed enough in this world to know what the best thing is to do. So I'm much happier to have somebody come along and say, we've written this tool, we get this stuff. Um, we'll do the best we can to make it more secure. It, even if it isn't 100% secure, it's far better than I was going to achieve my own. And um, it's it's I haven't used it enough to get a 100% um, recommendation that this will fit every use case. I'm sure like every tool is there's things it does well, there's things it doesn't do well, there's some use cases where it's maybe not so suited. But just from a little bit of experimentation, with it, it looks like something I'm going to be inserting into my tool chain where I can because the smaller the images are, the better. Really, especially yeah, if we're all yeah. working from home, we're putting these things down from servers that aren't actually in the building that you're in anymore.
0: Um, and if you're doing a continuous deployment, that which means pushing those actual images, then you want to do well, exactly, that. Quicker. Yes. Yeah, yeah, cool. Very nice.
2: Yeah, one of the things that um, Docker's used for that I think a lot of web people don't think about um, is um, cross-compiling. That's uh, one of the the places where Docker shows up and it's one of the places I use it is to compile on a machine that I don't have access to. So I can have a Docker image, like I can have a windows machine with a Linux Docker image or something and I can do compiling in there. So slimming that down speeds up my compiles uh, or I conceptually would. So I think this is something that definitely to try if you're using, using that. Exactly. You've reminded me of, in a similar vein. Um,
1: Docker is the basis of our continuous integration systems. Um, you, the, the, the ultimate end result is built inside a Docker container with all the bits we need. That yeah. can take quite a while because it can be quite large. You can slim that down as well. You know, the faster your CI is, the better for you,
0: really. Yeah, always. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Brian, I think that might be it. Time for some extras. Oh, I do want to do a quick follow up. I thought these were extras, but they're actually not. They're um, <laughs> things that that I do want to point out really quick. I actually gave a talk on this whole memory thing. If that GC conversation sounds interesting to you over yeah. at the Python web conferences here. So people can check that out and also have a talk Python class that like dives into a whole bunch of this stuff. Nice. Okay. I meant to include that in the before thing. Yeah. Now we're at the extras. Let's talk about that. <laughs> what do you got?
2: Um, the only thing, one of the things I want to uh, shout out is to everybody that supported, um, uh, the, uh, the PyTest book. So, uh, pragmatic, um, pragmatic, if you just go to the main page, there is a uh, bestsellers link um, that has had uh, Python testing with PyTest on it for many weeks now in the top six. And I just wanted to, to thank everybody that supported the book and, and helped um, the success of this. Also, the feedback that I got of the technical reviewers and plus many other people going through and, and submitting errata. Is going to make this a really solid book and i'm really uh, just happy to be part of a community to put this together so thanks yeah congratulations that's awesome
0: kim you got anything extra you want to throw out there uh, a couple of small things i was hoping to mention if we had
1: at the time um I see we've actually got mess with dns up on screen this is a good place to start i wanted to mention this little website uh messwithdns.net which julia evans who um on twitter is balk um, and she produces a variety of excellent webzines and so forth. I think you've actually, you've discussed her Git um, yeah. learning webzines <laughs> before. The
0: blank she, get
1: That's the one, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think there's an HR friendly one whose name I can't remember. Oh, we all shucks, remember the, 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 the memorable one, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> something She like released, that. something I like that, yeah. She released messwithdns.net recently as effectively a way to play with DNS without breaking your actual website, mm-hmm. um, which isn't. Something I'd ever thought to to look for, but now that it's around, it's actually a brilliant idea. There are some hard to understand things based into DNS, and what is an A record and a C name, and what you know if you, if your TTL is a three digit number versus a five digit number, what's the difference, or for that matter, what does TTL mean? And it, it's not necessarily an explainer for all these things, but it is a way to make these settings and see what they do That's without cool. actually breaking a real website. So effectively, she's spun up. A, a subdomain um, with a, a, a signed name. This one I happen to be on is goblin 61 com. The worst you can do is break goblin61.messwithdns.com, and that will then just go away for the next person who mm-hmm. comes along. Um so it's actually a really wow. smart, really clever idea. And typical to Julia's thoroughness, she's got a series of experimental suggestions on the side. Here are some things you can try. Here are some tutorials. How about making a CNAME? Or here are some weird things you can try. What happens if you've got a very long TTL or you convince three different DNS servers that your subdomain has three different IPs. Why you would do that is a mystery to me. But you know what would happen if you did is is something you can explore with this site without actually breaking your real website. And this seems like yeah. a very useful learning tool.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I love it. That's fantastic.
1: There were one other, well, two other small things I just wanted to mention. One, just um, because I use it all the time, and I, I don't know how common knowledge it is. It is possible in Python, and I don't have a, a web page to open for this to run a small little web server if you do python dash m what's it HTTP dot serve or dot server i've gone blank on which it is now to be honest server, uh, server. I uh, yeah, .server. yeah 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 i'm, I'm reading Any your f- notes i don't, I don't actually oh, yeah, that, I, that. i'm just going back to the notes to have a look myself <laughs> yeah <laughs> that effectively fires up a web server in the directory you opened it in and serves up the files that are there or the subdirectories that are in there and um, there's no security there's no attractiveness there's no styling there's no anything of the sort you wouldn't serve this to the public but if you wanted to get a file off the machine, and I do this quite a lot to get files onto my phone, for example, firing up a web server there and then and just pointing either right, a, a script or your own, you know, just to send your browser to you know, your, the local host with the port you gave it, and just download the files from there. It's a useful thing to be able to do.
0: Um, yeah, so that's a cool trick, it's like a, a directory a browsing, trick. basically. Yeah,
1: exactly. And then the final little extra I just wanted to talk about, and this is a little more tongue-in-cheek somewhat. Um, in both last week's Python Bytes and on recent Talk Python episodes, you have been speaking a little bit about different ways of doing Git. Um, you were discussing doing all your Git on the CLI, and I think uh, one of your one of your audience members at the last Python Bytes suggested the way they do Git is just mash all the buttons they can find in VS Code. <laughs> there is, I just want to put out the... Um, there is a middle ground that you could be looking at there's a, a, a tool called magit m-a-g-i-t which is effectively if you're an emacs user and you don't know Magit, you should change that immediately um magit is effectively a brilliant way of doing to me a brilliant indispensable way of doing Git inside emacs uh, granted it doesn't mean you need to learn emacs but in just a couple of short years after that you should be an expert at you shouldn't you should find Magit indispensable to take you a couple of years to learn the emacs i'm, I'm not disputing that but once you've got the emacs down um Magit really is an excellent option to look at doing your, your Git with. So if you're tired of doing it on the CLI, just set some years aside, learn learn yourself some Emacs, turn to Magit, and then wonder
2: how you ever did anything else. Set some years aside. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think that's fair to Emacs, but just a little no, it's bit not. too much. But... <laughs> I'll concede um,
1: Emacs is a much longer learning curve than VI, but it, it, it's not gears years. Correct. I, and well, I say I think... this,
0: I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, and Mario and the audience is taking credit for the VS code button matching. <laughs> right. Right on. Cool. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. Yeah, All right. Yes, is that I, it for I, your extras? I, I,
1: I, Go ahead. I should just point out in terms of it being unfair to Emacs, um, I've been using it for more than 20 years and I find it almost impossible to use anything else, but I'm sure it didn't take me years to learn. It's just been a long time. <laughs>
0: that's right. Well, yeah. cool. All right. I got a few throw out there, Really, actually just one. I made a comment, I think, on the last show, Brian, about using uh, emojis in my code. Yeah. So I wanted to bring that example up. So here's like a little CMS thing that I got going on. And if you return a collection, like themes are represented by these little tags in the CMS. And if you return a collection, the comment has a, a list of emojis. And if you return, if they're just like processing a single emoji, a thing, single theme, you get that emoji. For pages, you get a list of page emojis and so on. Anyway, that's nice. what I had in mind when I talked about that.
2: That's pretty cool you, to use. Yeah.
0: yeah. You can sort of just scan through and go, oh, look, there's a list of these. This must be doing a, a bunch of stuff. I don't know. I could probably come up with something like a modifying. I'm going to change a theme versus uh, read a theme or something like that. Yeah. Anyway. Well, that brings us to the laughs. And I hope you all enjoy schadenfreude because it's it's <laughs> it's bad this time. <laughs> Thank you, Log4J. Okay. So uh, let's see. First of all, this is not schadenfreude. This is just something about the cookies. My daughter yesterday gave me this candle it has a website we use cookies to improve our performance and then me same i just eat cookies
2: i thought that was really just funny for like a
0: tech candle that it should be
2: it should be a tan of cookies though i know it should Mm. it absolutely should at
0: least it should smell like cookies. It says scented. I have no idea what scented is, but it does better it smell like, smell like
2: websites? Maybe, uh, maybe.
0: <laughs> and then I just want to point out more practically. I, I have this add-on you can get for all the browsers. I don't care about cookies, and if it sees one of those cookie warnings, it'll try to click it and just accept it.
1: Oh, uh, this is indispensable. That's a brilliant to have on there. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And then Brian Skin starts us off with the log for J stuff. So if you remember, if you're aware, log for J. A lot the problem with log4j is if you try to log a piece of text even as an argument, if that text has J and D I colon L A D P L A L D A P colon slash slash to some Java library, instead of logging it, it will execute that Java stuff, even if it's remotely on the internet. Mm-hmm. And then it'll output the result of that, like you're hacked or whatever, right? <laughs> so we've all heard of the little bobby tables, right? Here's the Modern day one. Hi, this is your son's school. We're having computer trouble. Oh dear, did he break something? Well, in a way, did you really name your son? Cur- you know, dollar curly J and colon L D A P colon slash slash Evil Corp Parenthese, Bobby. Oh yes, little Bobby Jindy we call him. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got our servers crypto lock locked. I hope you're happy. I hope you learned to synthesize your log for J inputs. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic?
2: <laughs> yeah. This, I, I have a, a feeling that this, I mean, this is going to go on. It'll be the next. It, it isn't Log4J. It'll be something else next year. It's, yeah. And well, it's I mean, just it's, so been,
1: it's been there for 10 years. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Not, it's not a new thing, unfortunately. Yeah. It, it's not exactly. even a
0: vulnerability. It's just,
1: exactly. wait, you can Somebody actually switched. do that on it's purpose? A
0: <laughs> it's a feature. It's a feature. And mm. Brian helpfully suggests, this actually came from Log4JMemes.com. So we got to go there for a second. Well, of course that exists. Of course. And oh my gosh, like look at this picture. So Brian, will you describe this person for me on the screen? There's a person in a saying next to
2: him. Old white guy. Um.
0: <laughs> like, to me, he looks like a perfect sort of grandpa sort of character, right? Getting up yeah. there, probably 70. You know, nothing wrong with a guy, but it says upgrading Log4J three times wasn't that stressful. Dave, 28 years old. <laughs> <laughs> what else have we got in here? We've got. I wish just, that was
1: outrageously funny and not just kind of truish. But yeah,
0: I know. Here's like a 1940s looking picture, like a dad and some kids hanging around. Daddy, what did you do, do during the Great War? Uh, the Log for Shell incident. Uh, let's see. There's a few. If you go in here, like there's the how many days since such and such accident? Zero days without log for JCVE. And there's like Homer running around with like a nuclear glowing stick Uh, you can just spend you can spend some time in this place it's it's probably unhealthy there's like a grim reaper just going through taking out technology and it has a log for j on the grim reaper you know uh let me see if i can find one more that there's there's some really good ones uh this one is probably good there's a picture of a guy in a tuxedo. It says vendor <laughs> not vulnerable. to log for J, but there's a mirror and you see the back of him. <laughs> His clothes are just all god. It says uses EOL. Yeah, J four. Yeah, that one's pretty gross. I want to get that the screen. <laughs> but yeah, these are these are just fantastic here. Um, so anyway, people can check out the memes. Thanks, Brian, for sending that in. Brian Skin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, I, I I am reminded. I did see one the other day. I, I don't know that I could put it up now, but it's effectively that. I've just seen it in various other means, uh, a chap receiving an award from probably his manager. So, you know, me receiving an award from the manager for not being vulnerable to the log4j uh, vulnerabilities. And inside thinking, well, that's mainly because I chose not to log in. I completely forgot to log
0: anything. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really good. No logging. Yeah, here's a tweet. Today, Java runs on billions of devices. It's not a statement of pride, but a statement of pure terror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I don't want to hit on... Um, Java too hard. But the Log4J, I just cannot believe somebody thought it's it's a fantastic idea to execute remote code that you cannot escape. From Take a user, logging but, system. Yeah, in a logging system. It's just, what did you think you would get? So here we are yeah, with Log4JMemes.com if you want to scroll through it.
2: Let's back up and say somebody thought writing an application in Java was a good idea. No, sorry. <laughs> 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 I'll get hate mail for that one so (laughs) Uh, yeah don't
0: don't mail brian don't email brian he knows he knows all right well so brian that's it for the year isn't it i mean this is is the last episode we're going to take a little bit of time off
2: yeah some well-deserved time off
0: yeah absolutely so thank you everyone for listening kim thanks for coming to join us this time brian as always thank you and we'll see everybody next year yeah see you next year Thank
1: you for having me guys that was that was brilliant
0: Yeah, you're welcome. And if you're out there and you still haven't filled out that form and given us our feedback, let us know the Google form link is at the top of the show notes. All right, bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. Get the full show notes over at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item we should cover, just visit pythonbytes.fm and click submit in the nav bar. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. If you want to join us for the live recording, just visit the website and click live stream to get notified of when our next episode goes live. That's usually happening at noon Pacific on Wednesdays over at YouTube. On behalf of myself and Brian Aukin, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.